0: Did you praise God for the rising of the sun this morning? Did you praise God that you got up this morning? You, you, you do realize that uh, the sun rose this morning. The sun came up today because God willed it and commanded it. And you realize that you got up today because God willed it and commanded it. Too often we take for granted that God is intentionally and intimately involved in the care of his creation and his people. This morning, as we look at God's words together, the psalmist, he pushes this reality right in front of our notice, that God is intentionally and intimately involved with his creation and his people, and he calls us then to praise God in response to what we find. We are nearing the end of our series on selected psalms, and we have entered into the territory of the last five psalms of really the entire Psalter, the book of 150 psalms. These last five psalms, they all go together because they all begin and end with a command to praise the Lord. Literally, hallelujah. Each of these psalms, it sounds its own distinct note of praise. Last week, as we studied Psalm 146, we saw that God that God's people were called to praise God and to put their hope in him because he is their help in heaven. This morning in Psalm 147, we see that Israel is called to praise the Lord who powerfully cares for his creation and personally cares for his people. Uh, These two themes of God's care for his creation and his care for his people are interwoven throughout the psalm. And as I read Psalm 147, Notice how the psalms moves really back and forth between talking about God's care for his creation and then to his care for his people. Follow along now as I read Psalm 147. Praise the Lord Yahweh, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing, pray, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes his pleasure in those who fear him, in those who put hope, put hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord Yahweh. The message of Psalm 147 is simply this. Praise the Lord because he powerfully cares for his creation and personally cares for his people. That's what the people of Israel, to understand, they first received this psalm and rejoiced in its truth. And we should respond in the very same way. Christian, you should praise the Lord because He powerfully cares for His creation and personally cares for you. And in fact, that's the, the sermon in the sentence. Praise the Lord because He powerfully cares for His creation and personally cares for you. We're going to unpack this psalm thematically. Uh, though our psalmist has woven the threads of God's care for His creation and His care for His people together, uh, we're going to look at them separately because one serves the other. God's care for His creation Assures his people that he cares for them. He has the power to care for them. There should be a full outline provided, Lord willing, in the bulletin that will help you to follow along, I hope. Let's begin with our first point. Praise God because he cares for his creation. Take a look at verse 1 again. Praise the Lord Yahweh, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. As with Psalm 146, the the psalms that follow, the opening line of our psalm is praise the Lord Yahweh. It's a corporate call to worship. It's like what we heard this morning from Chronicles. It's a public call to praise. And this time, different than Psalm 146, this time, instead of the psalmist immediately following that command with his own personal commitment to praise the Lord, he tells us that such praise of the Lord is good, that praise of the Lord is good. Pleasant, that it's fitting. And the psalmist here, he's not just telling us what we should do, we should praise the Lord, but why we should do it. Because it is good, it's pleasant and fitting. These three terms, they carry them, with them the uh, connotation that the praise of God is intrinsically desirable, that it's, it's lovely and proper. It is right that God receive praise and it's right that we give it to him. It's a good thing that we do. But what does it mean to praise God? Well, to praise God is to announce his excellence, to announce his dignity, his glory. To to praise God is to ascribe to God the honor and the worth that he is due. When we praise God, we are announcing and ascribing all honor and glory and acclaim to God for who he is, so his character, and what he has done, his works. And in our psalm, praise is particularly associated with songs. Notice, though that it's good to sing praises to our God. A song of praise is fitting. So when the people of God are called to praise God in Psalm 147, they are expected to sing aloud, to audibly make known the greatness of God. What does that mean for you? Well, it means don't just stand there. Sing. Right? When we gather for corporate worship, don't just stand there. Pick up the words and, and do your best with them. Okay, you you may not like your voice or how it sounds, but the Lord gave you this command and he wants to know how it sounds. He wants to hear it from you and it will do your soul good to give honor to the God who made you and gave you life and breath. This psalm, it provides a whole host of reasons why we should praise God. So in verses four and five, we see that God is worthy of praise because of his mighty works and his matchless wisdom. You see there verse four, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. You can see God's mighty works in numbering the stars. Scientists and telescopes have not even glimpsed the full extent of the galaxies of this universe. But God has numbered and named every last star in every single galaxy that he has ever made. Uh, Many of us... Struggle to remember the names of others in our lives. Maybe even some of the names of people in this room. Uh, Maybe even some of the names in your home. You have a number of children and you which one am I talking to? Right? We we struggle, we, we forget. But not God. God is not limited. He's not forgetful like us. He knows the names of each one of us here this morning. He knows the names of the gazillions of stars that He's made. Our God is mighty. Great is our Lord and abundant. He's overflowing with power, as the psalmist says there in verse 5. God's understanding, his knowledge, his wisdom is beyond measure. God can count the number of stars because his understanding is beyond number. There's a play on words actually there. Our knowledge, our intellect, our understanding is limited because we are limited creatures. But God's knowledge, God's understanding, God's intellect are infinite. Uh, Those who are students in our congregation, young and not as young, uh, you sometimes press up against the limits of your knowledge and your capacities. You face frustrations, sometimes so much so that you, you just have to take a break, give your mind just a little bit of rest. God never faces such limits. God is never frustrated by the complexities of math equations or learning a foreign language because his understanding is beyond measure. Every subject and every system is simple to the sovereign God. God is worthy of your praise because of his mighty works and his matchless wisdom, his understanding. God is worthy of your praise because he generously gives fruitfulness to the earth and food to his creation. You can see this in verses eight and nine. You see in verse eight? He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Do you see the cascading effect there of verses 8 and 9? God brings in the clouds. He fills them up with water. And all of this is prepared rain for the earth. Why does the earth need a little fall of rain? Because through it, God makes the grass grow on the hills. And this helps the beasts to eat their food. All this happens naturally to our eyes. Yes, but God is supernaturally at work in our world. And the New Testament reveals that, that this text here in Psalm 147, that this text is actually a revelation of God's care. So in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, the, apostles, uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, his companion Barnabas, they're in this place called Lystra. They're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And there, the, the people of Lystra, they, they worship these pagan deities And Paul explains to him on the basis of this text that the one true God, he's left a witness of himself through the created order, he says, by giving rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Did you know that? Did you know that the rains and the seasons actually bear witness to you? That the God of the Bible is affectionate and attentive toward his creation. He's active in his creation. All of this is purposeful from our God. The rising of the sun today was his design, and for it he's worthy of praise. What the world sees as senseless seasons, God deploys as his deliberate design to care for his creation. The beasts do not ultimately feed themselves. God feeds them, as verse 9 says. He gives to the beasts their food. Our God feeds not just large animals, but small ones too. Like the baby ravens. Those are the ones that are in view there in our passage. These two animals, those giant beasts and those small little ravens, these are chosen for poetic purposes by the psalmist. He he wants to say that God cares about the large animals and the small animals and everyone in between. But consider the ravens for a moment, these baby ravens. When was the last time that you thought about how baby ravens all over the world get their food God thinks about them all the time because he cares for his creation the Lord Jesus he actually used these verses in Luke 12 to teach his disciples a lesson about God's love for his creation and for them so in Luke chapter 12 verse 24 Jesus said this consider the ravens they neither sow nor reap they have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds, See, Jesus tells his disciples that our heavenly father, he actually loves the birds and that you are more beloved than birds. Charles Spurgeon was right when he remarked, he who feeds the sons of the raven, so the baby ravens, will surely nourish the sons of God. God is worthy of your praise because he generously gives fruitfulness to the earth and food to his creation. And you, Christian, are a part of that. Even if you're you're not a Christian, you're a part of that. That's God's common grace and care and love displayed for you. All of God's governance of his world occurs by his word. Do you see this in verses 15 to 18? Read verse 15, beginning there. He sends out his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He put the frost on the ground this morning. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. God's word is active in his world. Notice in verse 15 that God's word is it's sent out like a courier, like right, carrying God's command from place to place. God's word is delivered here and there. And God's world obeys his commands, his word. The psalmist, he pictures this word as running through the seasons, really. God's word brings in the snow and the frost and the ice of winter. And the original audience probably would have reflected on the mountains of Lebanon and Hermon, looking up at them, seeing them capped with snow from time to time. Some of you can really identify with the the psalmist's words there in verse 17. Who can stand before his cold? Some of you really don't like winter. Um, But take heart, for he sends out his word, you see there in verse 18, and he melts them. Yes, he brings winter in by his word, but he also sends it out by his word. God's breath is portrayed as that warm summer breeze which melts the snow and the frost and the ice of winter. And all of this is teaching us that God, he cares for his creation. And it's not inadvertent, but intentional. Every day you experience on this earth was decided and designed by God. As the French reformer once said, if we would avoid a senseless natural philosophy, we must always start with this principle, that everything in nature depends upon the will of God and that the whole course of nature is only the prompt carrying into effect of his orders. If God is worthy of your praise for his care for creation, how much more is he worthy of your praise for his care for you as one of his people? Let's consider this now as our second point. Praise God because he cares for his people. Follow along as I read verses two and three. See verse two there? The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We see here that our Lord builds up, gathers up, heals up, and binds up his people. And these words, they would have been particularly sweet to the first audience that received them and sang them. They were the recipients of this psalm, those who were returning from exile in Babylon. Remember, just as God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden for their disobedience to God's commands, so the people of Israel were removed from the promised land of Canaan for their disobedience to God's commands. It's what we call the exile. And in the exile, the, the nation was shattered and scattered. If you go back and you read through 2 Kings chapters 24-25, and 25, you'll see the, the grueling destruction of Jerusalem. All of the gold that Solomon had stuffed into the temple was stripped away, and the treasury was emptied. The great houses of Jerusalem were burned, including the king's house and the Lord's house, the temple. The walls surrounding the great city were torn down. The, Babylon, the Babylonians, those who were attacking the city of Jerusalem, they wanted everyone to know that no defenses, no fortified cities, no walls would stop them. When they wanted to, they would crush you and carry you off. And so the people of Judah, they were actually deported in successive waves. Jerusalem had been torn down, The people scattered, their homes were destroyed, their hearts were broken. And though God warned his people through the prophets that this calamity of exile would come if they disobeyed his commands, God also promised through the prophets that one day he would return his people to the promised land of Canaan. He would regather them. So, for example, in Ezekiel 34, verse 16, pictures God as a good shepherd, and this is what he does. God says, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. That's what God did in the return from the exile. And the return from the exile happened, practically speaking, around 539 B.C. with the decree of the Persian king Cyrus. Now here's his decree from 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so with that, the people of Israel, the people of Judah actually, returned home and they began this rebuilding project under Nehemiah. And the Lord was faithful to his promises to heal the heavy-hearted people. And our psalm is rejoicing in that care for their sin, for their persistent disobedience to God's commands. Have you ever done that? Well, For their persistent disobedience to God's commands, he could have cast them off and cast them out forever. But God was gracious to forgive, to return his people to their land and to restore them. When God's people were singing verses 2 and 3, their hearts must have been overflowing with praise. They knew what guilty sinners they were, and they knew how great God's grace was to them. And we, we have even greater reason to be filled with praise and joy because of these words here in verses 2 and 3. Though God kept his promises to return his people through their, to their land after the exile, we know that these promises were ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, he, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue and he reads these words. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken hearted. You see, Jesus came to fulfill this psalm in Isaiah 61. Jesus came to bind up God's people, to gather in those who were outcast from God's presence because of sin. The most fundamental problem of the exile was not physical separation from Jerusalem, but spiritual separation from God. Jesus came to bind us up, to gather us up, and to bring us to God. In fact, in John 11, when the rulers of Israel were plotting to kill Jesus, we learned that it was by Jesus' death that the scattered children of God would be brought in. So in John chapter 11, verse 52, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And John tells us that not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, Psalm 147 here, it points to the gathering in of all of God's children, both Jew and Gentile, who believe in Jesus. Friend, Jesus came to heal your broken heart, and to bind up your wounds because of sin. Like Israel of the Old Testament, you too have refused to hear, believe, and obey the commands of God. Sadly, we all have. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You deserve to be cast out of God's eternal presence because of your sin. But in Jesus Christ, God gathers his people in, and you should praise God because he sent Jesus to heal the heavy-hearted like you. If God is so willing to draw near to you in Jesus, then you should draw near to him in praise. Consider these words from Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus does not cast out those who believe. He gathers them in. Tell Jesus where you have been torn down by sin so that he might build you up. Tell Jesus where you are wounded, so that he might heal you. And along these same lines, we see in verses six and seven that we should praise God, because he lifts up the lowly. Take a look at verses six and seven. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. God will not cast his people out But he will cast down the wicked. The people of Judah, they had been humiliated. They were humiliated when they were carried off to exile. They had been driven from their homes. They were made servants and subjects in a foreign land. And yet, God reversed their fortunes. God lifted his people when he cast down the wicked of Babylon. God did that through the king of Persia, through Cyrus. It was cause for real rejoicing and thanksgiving. Such a restoration did lead the people of Israel to make melody and to sing to the Lord. And this psalm is actually evidence of that very fact. They praised God for what he had done. But the return from exile was not the full extent of God's purposes. Remember, God meant to restore what was lost in Eden. Fellowship between God and man. And to do that, God had to savingly lift his people out of sin. And cast down the one who had first deceived his people into sin. And how did God savingly lift us up? Through Jesus Christ. This is what God prophetically proclaimed he would do in the opening chapter chapter of Luke's gospel. Do you remember what Mary prayed in Luke chapter one, verse 52? Mary prayed this, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. How did God do this? How would God do this? By lifting up our Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. As we thought about in Wednesday night Bible study this past week, our Lord Jesus was lifted up on the cross and lifted up from the grave to defeat the devil and death. Jesus defeated the ruler of this world who has enslaved men and women in sin, binding them in his deceit. And in fulfillment of God's promises, from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter three, verse 15, Jesus crushed the head of that ancient serpent in his death and resurrection. In verses 6 and 7, we have not just a bare truth, but a spiritual one too. For God lifts up not the humiliated, but the humble. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you humble? Are you amazed at God's generosity and grace toward you as a sinner? Are you amazed that God receives you in Jesus Christ even though you've rebelled against him? Do you ascribe all good in yourself to God? Do you consider others first and yourself last? Philippians chapter two, verse three says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. A humble heart goes low to lift others up. That's exactly what Jesus has done for sinners like us, like you and me. Jesus got under your burden of sin on the cross. Jesus bore the punishment, the eternal wrath of God that was due to your sin on the cross. Jesus bore your hell on the cross. Jesus buried it in the grave. And three days later, he was resurrected from the grave. And all of those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus are united to Jesus in his victory over sin and death. Has the Lord Jesus lifted you up in salvation? In humility, confess the horrible nature of your sin. Confess that it is rebellion against the eternal and infinite God. That it contravenes His holiness. That it contradicts His commands. Express your brokenness over your sin. And place your hope in Jesus Christ. In humility, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ today. Trust that he lived the life that you have not lived, the life of perfect righteousness before God the Father. Trust that he died the death that your sins deserve. Trust that he was raised in victory over sin and death to give you salvation and eternal life and to bring you into glory with him on the last day. And if you want to know more about what it means to be lifted up in salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or the family member that you came here with this morning, about this good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important that you could think about this morning than what it means to be lifted up by Christ in salvation. One sign that you have been lifted up from your lowly estate, that you've been saved, is that you will, as verse 7 says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. The lowly who have been lifted up cannot help but give thanks to the Lord in song. You may look around at our world and think, but right now, it's the wicked who are lifted up and God's people who are cast down. But beloved, you must see the world with spiritual eyes, with the eyes the scriptures give to us and help us to see. Yes, the wicked may be exalted for a time, but on the last day, they will be cast down. God's people may suffer under the burdens and weight of this world for a time. But on the last day, we will be lifted up. Remember the truth of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and exaltation to his throne is the down payment upon God's promise to lift us up to glory with Christ on the last day sing with thanks on this day for you will certainly sing with thanks on the last day give praise to god because he lifts up the lowly that you are lowly now means that you need to depend upon him now as verses 10 and 11 teach us our god delights in such dependence look at verse 10 his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man but The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Isn't it kind of God to tell us what he actually takes delight in? He doesn't delight in the strength of an army or the strength of an athlete. God does not take delight in the world's strongest military or the world's strongest man. God does not delight in a nation who trusts in unmatched military strength. That's almost certainly what the strength of a horse refers to. In fact, in Isaiah 31, verse one, the Lord warned his people about this saying, "'Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are mighty, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord.'" God's people were not to look to horses or humans for ultimate help, but to heaven. They were not to depend upon the might of another nation But the Almighty, who made the nations, kings, rulers, presidents, and prime ministers often delight in their military might. I saw a video clip of one of these kind of military parades. These guys were on these little sticks and spinning with binoculars. It was the weirdest thing in the world. But they have these parades right in front of their rulers to say, look how great and strong our nation is. And sometimes they look just so silly. They certainly look silly to God, who has all strength in all creation. God delights in those who depend upon him. How foolish we are to depend upon a man and upon strength that fails. How wise you will be if you depend upon the God whose strength and love never fails. Our God has irresistible power, inexhaustible power, infinite power. This is the God in whom we should fear. And not fear in the sense that we are are terrified of Him, but fear Him as as in we we honor Him, we we reverence Him, we, we praise Him and esteem Him. The second line of verse 11 explains the meaning of the first. Those who fear the Lord are those who hope in His steadfast love. And notice the nature of God's love. It's steadfast, it's unwavering, it's faithful. He's true to His promises to His people, which means He's true to you you need to know that God is full of mercy, love, compassion, and care for his people. He cares for you. Do you want to please the Lord or put your trust in him? He's worthy of it, and he cares for you. Do you want the Lord to delight in you? Then depend upon him to be your protector and your provider. He's able, and he cares for you. That's what verses 12 to 14 teach. you see the verse 12? Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Again, this psalm, it was likely written after the people of God returned home to rebuild Jerusalem and her walls. The psalm calls for giving God praise because he's the one who's ultimately her defense, his people's defense. Yes, practically the, the new walls and gates would keep the enemy out, but it is God who has given them the gates to begin with. And he's the one who will fortify them further still. He's Israel's ultimate strength. The people of God have no need for trust in horses and chariots. They can trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Verse 13 should remind you of Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 6, verse 18, 16, verse 18, to build his church so that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Just as God was the safety and security of his people in the past, so the Lord Jesus Christ is our safety and security today. The mention of the need for protection in this psalm and in Matthew 16 tells us that the people of God will be attacked and assailed. These things in the scriptures, they tell us that the people of God will be attacked and assailed. And that God's people should not be surprised by that. As the good Dr. Ryle has observed, the history of Christ's true church has always been one of conflict and war. It has been constantly assailed by a deadly enemy, Satan, the prince of this world. The devil hates the true church of Christ with an undying hatred. He is ever stirring up opposition against all its members. He is ever urging the children of this world to do his will and to injure and harass the people of God. Yes, Satan is an active adversary and you have a strong God. Beloved, Christ is our protector. Jesus strengthens our gates. He promises us that he shall prevail. Jesus is your eternal safety and security. The power of hell may be great, but the power of heaven is greater still. Not a single one of Christ's sheep can ever be lost. So Christian, be of good courage, and be of good cheer, with confidence, with some audacity, and resolve. Speak to others around you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has promised to keep your heart and guard your soul. So make him known. God protects his people, and he prospers them. The second half of verse 13 tells us that God is the one who gives them their children. The children within them would be a blessing but they would also be part of God's means of buttressing the city's safety. The sons who would be born to them would grow up to be a part of the Lord's army there in Jerusalem. And as a wider society, I think we need to recover the understanding that children are a blessing and not a burden. The Lord has told us so in Psalm 127 verse 3, and the Lord is never wrong. Children, build our society up, even ensuring safety and security for future generations after them. As a church, let us model for our community the enjoyment of God's blessing in children. Let us rejoice in the children that God has been pleased to send us as a church family. We expect two to be born even within this month to our congregation. And let us pray for those who have lost children and those who are longing for the Lord to provide children. Let us support those who are trying to adopt children, praying for them, and pledging to support them where we can. When we read in verse 14 that the Lord fills his people with the finest of wheat, we're reminded of all that we considered in God caring for his creation. How could the people of Jerusalem enjoy wheat without God sending the sun and the rain and a fruitful harvest? God is in control of it all. He uses his powers in creation to personally care for his people and to provide for them. God is worthy of praise because he protects, he prospers, He brings peace, here we see, and he provides for his people. But the way in which God singularly, by that I mean especially, blesses his people is in declaring his word to them. Throughout the course of history, in God's common grace, he has given to various nations of the earth, seasons of protection and prosperity and peace. But the gift of his word is a unique and unmatched gift to Israel. This is what we find in verses 19 and 20. These verses are really the climax of the psalm, and for good reason. You see verse 19 there? He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not thus dealt with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Verse 19 uh, contains a, a poetic parallelism. That means the author is placing two things kind of in parallel ideas. So God's word in the first part of the verse is parallel to his statutes and rules in the second part of the verse. So God's word is the same thing, really, as his statutes and rules. And there's another parallelism in this verse, too, between Jacob and Israel. These are not different nations, uh, but different names for the same nation. So God, he, he gave his word. That is to say, he gave his statutes and rules to Jacob, to Israel. God gave His divine revelation concerning His promises of salvation in His Son and His precepts in life to Israel. This God did uniquely for Israel. No other nation was the recipient of God's divine promises and precepts in His Word. And in this way, Israel had a privileged position in the history of the world. But we should be clear. God's people, Israel, They did not receive God's word because of anything good in them or because they were intrinsically superior to any other nation. They weren't. God tells us explicitly they weren't in Deuteronomy 7. No, in God's sovereign wisdom, he chose to give them his saving word. They were sinful like the rest of the nations. But it was in God's love that he showed this great mercy and kindness to them. God's worthy of praise for showering such kindness upon Israel. And the New Testament affirms the privilege that Israel had. So, for example, in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul he, he raises this question what advantage has the Jew? And this is how he answers it. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the starting point of their advantage. They possessed God's divine revelation. And who possesses God's divine revelation today? We do. You perhaps have a copy right there in your hand. And we ought to praise God that He has generously given us His Word. Praise God for men like Luther and Tyndale who suffered to get God's Word to God's people in their own language so they could read it with their own eyes. Praise God for the invention of the the printing press that made the Bible so widely available. Praise God that we can have copies in our church, in our homes, and even in our pockets. Martin Luther once remarked, let it happen that others are rich and we are poor, that they are powerful and we are weak, that they are happy and we are sad, that they are admired and we are despised. They are alive and we are dead. They have everything and we have nothing. What of it? You have God's word, they don't. Similarly, Joel Beeke wrote that the greatest gift from God is his word. Even today, many millions of peoples do not have access to the scriptures in a language that they can understand. Yet how precious is his word. It is powerful, for it is the word of him who rules all things. It is full of wisdom, for it is the word of him who is infinite in understanding. It is a message of hope and salvation, for it is the word of the compassionate and merciful God. Brothers and sisters, let us give praise to our God because he has generously given us his word. The world is constantly looking around, blindly looking around and groping in the dark. They're looking for a light to live by. But you have God's word, a lamp to your feet, and a light to your path. In your Bible, you have God's promises of love and salvation to you. In your Bible, you have God's precepts for wise and holy living. In your Bible, to use the words of our church's statement of faith, you have a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. Beloved, as we conclude, consider that we have so much to praise God for. This psalm, it runs through a short list. The psalmist has really only begun to think of ways that we might praise God. We have this short list of why our God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of your praise because he's mighty in works and matchless in wisdom. God's worthy of your praise because he gives fruitfulness to the earth and food to his creation, even to you. God is worthy of your praise because he cares for his world by his word. He commands the seasons and the rain and the sun. All of God's wisdom and power and care for his creation is deployed in love for his people. God is worthy of your praise because in Jesus Christ, he heals your heavy heart, your broken heart. And he lifts you from the depths of sin and death. God is worthy of your praise because he protects and provides for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus will keep you eternally safe to the end. God is worthy of your praise because he has generously given you his word. You are not left in the dark, but you've been given the light of life in God's word. Beloved, it is good. It is right. It is fitting that you should give praise to God. You should praise the Lord because he powerfully cares for his creation, of which you have the privilege of enjoying and because he personally cares for you in Jesus Christ. He has a concern for your soul. He is watching it, watching over it as the great shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep that he loves. And Jesus laid down his life for you. And he will see you safely home into that pasture of glory and give praise to him for that and for all things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that you are a great God who is high and lifted up. And yet you condescend to care for lowly like us, for sinners like us. You condescend to save us. How great is your love for us. Father, may we give you unending praise for the way which you have loved and cared for your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.